Demons can sometimes use objects as conduits to achieve their desired goal. Their desired goal? Our souls, John. It wants her soul. No, no, no. Demons can't just take souls, Mia. The soul needs to be offered to the demon before it can take it. Welcome to Now Playing's The Conjuring Retrospective Series. It scares us just thinking about it. When you hear it, you're gonna think we're insane. Hosted by Marjorie. I'm gonna get you now. I can hear you breathing. Arnie. Oh my god. It's standing right behind you. And Stuart. God brought us together for a reason. This is it. This review will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, go ahead. Where do I start? From the first occurrence. Today we're discussing Annabelle Comes Home, starring McKenna Grace, Madison Eisman, Katie Serif, Vera Farmiga, Patrick Wilson, directed by Gary Doberman. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, and if there are any presences here in this podcast, please give me a sign, any sign at all. That would be me, Stuart, here in Springfield. And this is Marjorie, and I wish I had coins for my eyes. Yeah, we could get some of our money back. (laughs) No, I paid for it in my soul. Seven times. Seven (laughs) times we've gone back to this Conjuring universe. Did we think it was going to be different? I have given one recommend. And I went back and watched all the Annabelle movies and more or less stand by my half-hearted endorsement of Annabelle creation. Have you guys gone back to any Conjuring? Yeah, we actually watched all the Annabelle movies leading up to this to kind of refresh our memory because the lines between The Conjuring and Annabelle are really hazy and fuzzy and I couldn't remember which was which. So we did rewatch them and I will agree with you on creation. It is probably at the top. Yeah, I've started with Conjuring 1 because that really had Annabelle teases and Annabelle terrorizing the daughter. I remembered that, so I thought I should revisit it before an entire movie based on that subplot. Mm -hmm. And I went in with high hopes, I have to say, because believe it or not, after seeing The Nun and rewatching The Conjurings a while ago, I think Annabelle is my favorite leg of The Conjuring series. But then when I rewatched them, Annabelle, the first one, is really, really bad. I think all my goodwill for this Annabelle series comes from part two, which I didn't recommend, but that was a weak not recommend because I half-heartedly enjoy that one. Oh, good. We're all saying the same thing. If you're going to see an Annabelle movie, start with the creation storyline. I thought it was just atmospheric. It was well-directed. It had a cool house. That little girl was a good actress. I tend to find children to be kind of like over the top when they're acting, And there's a fine line between acting and, oh my God, you need to quit and just go back to playing with your dolls. And she was really good. And I hope she goes on to do other stuff because she really sold it, I thought. And much like the girl in this one, who we've seen previously in I, Tanya, she was little Tanya Harding. I think that that girl did a good job. I don't think she was given much to work with, which we'll get in with. I agree with you. The two little girls in Annabelle Creation were good. My problem was the older kids all felt like they just stepped off of a frickin' Noxima ad. (laughs) I feel like I should have given it a recommend, just so I won't be seven red arrows in a row. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, it wasn't perfect, but I felt like that was the one film where I could endorse it more or less start to finish. And what it said about the mythos, I don't really care. I don't really have a lot of belief that the Warrens and all the things that they collect have interesting backstories for all these occult items. It's not. Oh, you're screwed this movie. Well, I know. That's why I'm kind of not excited about the direction that they're going in is because this is going to be the appetizer plate sampler for all the potential spinoff movies we're going to get in the future, as well as trying to, what I hope to believe, is bring the Annabelle storyline to a conclusion. This may be the last movie for this doll, but it is the start of many other horror spinoffs. I just want to point out, DC couldn't do it. Universal Monsters couldn't do it. So many people have tried to copy the Marvel Universe of Movies style. Even Star Wars couldn't do it. The successful one is Conjuring. Wow, Star Wars couldn't do it? We'll see about that. Solo, that's what I'm saying. They can't do the multi-arc stuff. Solo did not do it. Yeah, that is true. Here's the thing is, because I rewatched them, I was like, Annabelle 2 is the best movie of this franchise, and this one just looks like a haunted house film. It doesn't look like we're going to have a lot of the Catholic imagery and a lot of the self-important warrenness. So I really went into this one thinking this would be my first Green Arrow of the Conjuring series. I was legitimately lukewarm going in instead of completely upset that I had to watch it. <laughs> you are such an optimist when it comes to stuff like this, and I don't understand it. I could show you three really awful movies. You'd be like, the fourth one will be good. It's fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> yeah, I can't say I had optimism, but there was at least indications that it would be a little bit different, uh, maybe a little bit more exciting. I mean, I think our complaint has been that it's been a little unbelievable. Once they get past the sheen of we're back in the 70s, they love all the retro details, but once you peel all of that away, it's a lot of hogwash here. Here, they seem to be embracing the hogwash. The fact that we're going to go to the cursed antiques room and just make them all go crazy and attack, no one is claiming this really happened. And Judy is doing press for this movie. The Warrens really did have a daughter, Judy Warren. She is out there on the circuit giving interviews. I've seen a few of them. She has already said this never happened. Annabelle has never gotten out of her case. I have never had this kind of encounter. This is all a Hollywood creation. And so maybe if they're given liberty to do things that aren't quote-unquote true stories, it will be a lot more fun to watch. In these interviews, does she believe her parents' stories? Does she go along with their press that they really cured Amityville and all that? Yes, she is the curator of the museum. So she has a financial interest. <laughs> yes. It is a place to go in the dark tourism circuit. So yeah, she's making some money off of it. Probably doesn't have to work. Although her parents are widely panned in the paranormal universe. Yeah, I think she's protective of that. I think that she defends their reputation. She is a, a believer and thinks that you should come to the museum and see these things as well. For only, what, $50? Yes, exactly. Oh, I do want to point out that if we are ever in that area, we will be spending that and going to see this, Arnie. I'm just saying that right now. If we are ever in, was it Connecticut? Hartford, yep. We're going. 
In fact, I'm half tempted that the three of us just go on a road trip and go. Yeah, she is going to sell you on this. She didn't do a hard sell. I will say that she was kind of smiling during some of it when talking about how scary it was. I don't think that she actually was traumatized. And some of this she defers to her husband as well, who is a character in this movie. We'll talk about that, I guess, as we get into the plot. Bob's got balls? No, Anthony. The bedwetter, isn't it? Yep. (laughs) I thought Bob was too old for her. I'm really ticked if a portrayal of me in a movie was that I was a bedwetter and an asshole. Yeah. It's not completely accurate, but I don't know what that part is or not. You're right. He's probably not an asshole. (laughs) Well, we saw this on Friday. It did open Tuesday night of all nights. I guess they couldn't let Chucky have a full week of being the top horror film at the box office. It opened Tuesday, just four days after Chucky. We saw this on Friday night. Really full theater. I was surprised at how many people were there to be scared on a Friday night. Yeah, we saw it at the nicer AMC with the recliner seats, and I'm still always floored that people bring blankets and pillows to that. But yeah, it was much more crowded than I thought. In fact, I think only the front row was empty, which I was shocked at, especially like at a 7.30 showing on a Friday night when it's really nice out. I saw it in IMAX, and they really have only been doing that once a day. It's because they want to make Toy Story the big IMAX film of the week. One time a day, last show of the evening, they screened Annabelle Comes Home. I saw it on Thursday. Many people are not paying that IMAX price. There was maybe five other people in the theater with me, and so I couldn't really get a gauge on audience reaction and if they were into it or not. I can say our audience was into it. Oh, boy, yes. There were people... Covered up in blankets, covering their heads at scary moments. There was a girl just off to the front and right of me who, granted, all of these jump scares were pretty dang predictable, right? I mean, Arnie had detected the pattern, but this was different from the pattern. But you still knew when things were going to jump out and make noises and things. This woman was like leaping out of her seat with her blanket covering her head going, oh, oh. Every time something was scary. Wow, that would really change my perspective of this film if I saw people getting excited about it. I mean, like, we all just kind of, like, let it washed over us. And that's too bad. You want to be in an atmosphere where people are getting into the movie. Well, that was one person. There were probably five people, mostly on their phones throughout the entire movie. (laughs) One person taking pictures Mm. during the movie with their flash. So I would say maybe, like, one person out of the 15 was engaged. No, but I did notice that the room was, this movie is very quiet. There's long periods where there are tones, but it's not a loud score. And there's no dialogue. They keep sound effects very controlled so that when the big noise comes, you're scared. And the entire theater was dead quiet during these moments. They were in rapt suspense. And then when the scares would come there'd be this tittering of laughter that told me everybody had fun with the jump okay well that's going to make a difference because this movie is i don't know arnie you give them the plot but i think you could just give them the jump scares and that would be the (laughs) plot In 1971, Ed and Lorraine Warren, played by Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga, take possession of the demonically possessed doll, Annabelle. They quickly discover the doll is a magnet for other spirits. They take the doll back to their home to be locked up with their other cursed antiques, but not even a priest's blessing can contain Annabelle's power. They also have to put her in a cabinet made of glass from a torn-down church. I didn't realize church debris was holy. (laughs) 
A year later, the Warrens go off to investigate another supernatural case, as they do pretty regularly. As for their daughter Judy, played by McKenna Grace, she's left in the care of regular babysitter Mary Ellen, played by Madison Eisman. And unbeknownst to her parents, Judy has started to have visions of dead people, just like Haley Joel Osment, and like her mom Lorraine. The babysitting is crashed by Mary Ellen's friend Daniela, played by Katie Sarif. Daniela blames herself for her father's death, and she hopes that by breaking into the Warren's artifact room, she can apologize to her father. Instead, in the room, she unleashes Annabelle, and a myriad of other spirits, including a ferryman who takes a coin or takes your soul, a hellhound, a murderous wedding dress, a dangerous board game. Thus becomes a night of terror for the three girls, and for poor Bob, the Warren's across-the-street neighbor who has a crush on Mary Ellen. Finally, Judy realizes the only way to stop the horrors is to get Annabelle back in the cabinet. Every evildoer tries to stop that from happening, but eventually they do, and all returns to normal. The next morning, the Warrens return home, and the three girls tell them everything. The parents take it in stride, and Lorraine even communes with Daniela's father, who says, Stop being so hard on yourself. It's not your fault this movie blows. <laughs> As credits roll. <laughs> okay, so yeah, here we are yet again, doing the same review. I have a big question before we even get started, gentlemen. Mm. Why was this movie rated R? Yeah, that was a big one for me. And I, a shock. I have to believe it's because, as I suggested with La Llorona, they want that. It gives them more legitimacy to say this is an R-rated horror movie, when in fact this could easily be PG-13. According to the MPAA, Annabelle Comes Home is rated R for horror, violence, and terror. And according to ParentPreviews.com, there's one use of extreme profanity and half a dozen moderate profanities. Yeah, exactly. There was profanities? <laughs> I mean, Bob's Got Balls wasn't really profane. I mean, jeez. No, that is actually referenced under sexual content, is that an individual is repeatedly joking referred to as having balls. He's the equipment manager for the basketball team. Yeah, ParentsPreviews.com mentions that. So... Yeah, I think the Conjuring films always request. You know, when you submit to the MPAA, you say, here's what we'd like to have. And I think they go up. I doubt they ever go down, you know? I don't think they ever look and say, oh, you want a PG-13, but you're really a G. So I think every time they want the R rating, but they don't want to be overly scary or bloody or much of anything. Although this one does have... Some stabbings and some gore and decent makeup. But you don't see, like, Daniela all bloody when she gets stabbed. No one dies. We're in question about a chicken dying, <laughs> but no humans die. Yeah. We don't even think any humans die. Compared to the recent Child's Play reboot, it is a stark contrast in how they achieve their R. I've seen scarier episodes of TV shows on network television than this. Now, to be fair, you don't have to kill to be scary. You can have suspense. What the Conjuring movies pride themselves on is we have brought back the 70s vibe of horror, the atmosphere of horror. And so that's what they like to ladle on. And the fact that there's not a high body count shouldn't make a difference. But just having some shag carpeting doesn't make it a 70s vibe. But they really tried hard because that house was like high fashion for 70s decor throughout the entire decade. But the 
teenage girls used modern slang, I noticed, and their inflections and everything. Modern hairstyles. Yeah, they weren't saying things were groovy and things. It was very modern talk. It was a modern ghost film, but it was at 70s retro night. All right, let's get into the movie. Yeah, we start where we've started many times now, with these nurses giving to Ed and Lorraine the Annabelle doll. In case you forgot, in 1971, they had it. This story was told in The First Conjuring. It was referenced in The First Annabelle. And I guess because this is called Annabelle Comes Home, we need to see them actually bring it home to Hartford, Connecticut on a scary road trip. Doesn't it kind of like strike you a little bit of worrisome that they just like throw it in the back seat like it's a kid and drive down these dark highways with this possessed doll in the back seat? Yeah, they don't seem very concerned about its power. You know, they'll talk up a good game about it's so evil and exuding and all of that, but I guess that's why it's able to cause the car to break down and get stuck outside a cemetery. Does it actually cause the car accident that prevents them from going forward on the road they normally would have taken? I took it that it did. I took it as no, it was just an eerie circumstance, but it did cause the spirit of the dead person in the accident to arrive. We're going to be told Annabelle calls other spirits, which is why when they break down right outside a graveyard, every ghoul from every tomb is closing in to seal Lorraine's doom. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think you'd throw Annabelle in the trunk or something. I did get a chuckle, though, when the cop is like, nice doll. And Ed was, that's what you think. You know, I've come to like Patrick Wilson of Vera Farmiga as these two, especially Patrick Wilson. I mean, all of his home repairs, he's constantly fixing things in all of the movies, and I'm happy to see them here. I knew that this movie was they leave and it's a home alone with ghosts type of movie, but... I was glad they had as much of this opening as they did to set the mood and bring a familiar face from the earlier films and a wry sense of humor that this movie's gonna lack. Well, back when we started, I told you that I like those two and I really like her because I think she's really good in that role and she's very peaceful and very comforting. And for a while, they were dressing her really great in period clothes. I thought, this one... uh... I thought they kind of phoned it in, but I really liked her and I have always liked her in this role. And those two together are really nice and they're very calming people, very supportive of others, which we'll see at the end. They seem like good people. I don't know if that's true, but at least these two play it as nice people. Here's what I'm going to say is these are characters, Ed and Lorraine. Yes, there are real Ed and Lorraine in the world. The Conjuring is loosely based on one of their exploits. This movie is going to be dedicated at the end to Lorraine Warren, who passed away recently. But to me, these are fictional Ed and Lorraine on screen, much like the Harlem Globetrotters never actually got trapped on an island with Scooby-Doo. They didn't? Thanks, Arnie! Jeez! Well, I do know that this was added late, too. I mean, I think that they were making this movie without them, and at some point they realized they could either get them or that they needed to get them, and that these scenes were added sort of, yeah, as a frame story. It would be hard to imagine this movie, its legitimacy would be even less if we didn't have them setting up the Annabelle story, I think. You'd need, at a bare minimum, to have them at the beginning leaving on the trip and handing the house over to the babysitter. If you didn't have that, 
I mean, that would just feel awkward. So I kind of feel like they'd have him at least for a cameo if this was added later. Yeah, I'm reminded of Poltergeist 3, how Carol Ann is just suddenly with Tom Skerritt and Nancy Allen. Like, they could have done something where she's now staying with relatives, uh, less expensive actors or something like that. This movie costs $27 million. I mean, that's a lot for a Conjuring movie. It's not a lot for an Avengers movie. I don't think they want to cheap out on this franchise the way Poltergeist 3 did. Sure. Yeah. And I will say in terms of the period detail, the use of camera work, we'll have overhead shots and trick shots and things. I can see that the money is here. Even though they have a very minimalist cast of characters, they use their budget wisely to try and make it feel as expansive as possible. But this opening, it's interesting. I definitely enjoyed all the zombies coming out of the graves and things and... I thought it was setting up a good monster mash type horror film. I wanted something fun and this opening looked like it was going to promise something fun. But here's the thing. If you have a doll that's a conduit for evil, why would you put it in a room where everything else is evil? That seems like, oh, we have a can of gasoline. Well, let's make sure we put it by the fireplace. I mean, that's dumb. I agree. It it seems that their containment leaves a lot to be desired as far as safety. It's like in the basement of their home behind just a generic locked door with like a few deadbolts. Wouldn't you just get a storage unit for that? Or, yeah, burn it. Why not destroy it? They actually covered that in the earlier films. They say that if you destroy the vessel, you can make it much worse because then you're setting the demon free. It's letting the genie out of the bottle. Right. Can't you just burn it in a cathedral glass that they've got it in? I mean, it seems that there are some other options rather than keeping it in your home. It is a demon. It is not Chucky. It's not like Annabelle gets up and walks around and stabs people. So... Cutting it off at the knees isn't going to stop it from what it's doing, but I find the thought of the Warrens keeping everything in their home with their daughter to be unsafe. If they lived alone and their entire life was devoted to this, that would be one thing, but if you have a little girl in the house, having cursed antiques feels like a dangerous game to play. I understand you wouldn't want it in a storage unit because you're not keeping an eye on the storage unit. It's not close to home, but they need to have a security system, which they had in the 70s. It was really expensive and only really rich people had them, but you need to have a lot more security around this room than just a few deadbolts. Here's the other thing. So you've got this room of demonology in your house And then you leave the house and leave your young daughter with a freaking teenage babysitter in this house of horrors. And I got to figure this is a common occurrence. I mean, we've seen the Warrens go all over the world investigating. This daughter is pretty much raised by babysitters, I got to think. And in truth, Judy has said that her grandmother did take care of her, that her parents were always running off to the latest adventure and that she didn't see them. Also, she pointed out that by 1972, which is when we jumped to, she was already a grown adult. So this movie's period detail is not accurate. She was not a child at this time. No, and in the picture they show at the end, she does not look like a happy girl. People used to not smile in photos, though. But this is where we learn, I think, uh, something I find incredibly amusing, that the Warren secret is out. It's making the front page of the paper, as they're trotting off to their latest adventure, headlines of the day is that they are possibly a, a hoax or heroes to the community. And that's really going to impact Judy's day at school. Like All the kids that she hangs out with are going to second guess whether they want to come over for her birthday party if, in fact, her parents 
parents are demonologists, and they do keep <laughs> occult items all throughout their house. I think it's a good time to go to whatever the 70s equivalent of Chuck E. Cheese was. Yeah, right. Have the party there. Right, the park, something like that. But, you know, like, th this is also just amusing, too, because the Warrens are positioning themselves as private people. That, oh, we don't want you to know what we're doing. We lock away our occult items from the public. It's like, no, these people are very much trying to get their names in the headlines. They were always trying to insert themselves into Amityville and what have you, usually unwanted. And so the thought that they were living in suburbia privately and that they didn't want their community to know what they were doing, a part of the lie. Again, that's why I say this is fictional characters, Ed and Lorraine Warren up there on screen. I am not pretending that any of this is even based on real characters. It's fictional characters with somebody's real name. And I have to believe that they wanted to make her birthday this day and the parents couldn't be there, but they realized that Ed and Lorraine would look as bad as the other school children by not showing up for their daughter's birthday. <laughs> Do you remember my seventh birthday? <laughs> My parents left for France, and the babysitter had a party with you, me, Billy, and Kristen. And I hit my head. Yes. You hit your head? Yes, I do. I do remember that. And the photos are hysterical. Yes. but I was crying so hard. And I think if we made that movie or showed that footage, I think many people might judge your parents very harshly as well. I do think that it's very easy to get judgy when you're watching parents that choose to, yeah, certainly chase a demon as opposed to be there for a little girl who is having demonic problems, who is starting to see ghosts follow her around at school. And so I think they do this thing where, like, her birthday is really later, but the birthday sitter is going to celebrate the birthday this weekend that she's watching them while the parents are away. And thus begins a very, very long setup. But I'm going to say I like the three girls in this setup. McKenna Grace is very charismatic as Judy. I think she holds the screen well. She does a good job of playing conflicted in that she's hurt that her friends are shunning her. She's trying to keep secret that she sees a dead priest following her around. She emotes very well. Yeah. And Mary Ellen is really good too. I'd seen this actress before in Jumanji. She played Jack Black in the real world incarnation. I thought she was rather bland. I thought she was fine. I got that she cared for Judy and that she was a good girl, a good babysitter. Well, and then we have Daniela, the bad girl, the rebel. But I just want to say, like, when this whole thing was set up, which, and I also checked my watch, we're about 45 or more minutes into the movie at this point. The whole setup was very Halloween because you had your babysitter with the little girl. And then you had the friend who was trying to get her to invite a boy over and was trying to talk her into doing questionable things while she's supposed to be babysitting. It seemed really cookie cutter like they were going to do this. Like I easily predicted that Daniela was going to do something to let Annabelle loose. And here we go. But The Conjuring's whole MO is like, how closely can we emulate The Exorcist, Rosemary's Baby, Halloween, and all those great 70s horror movies? That's what they pride themselves on. That's why they take the time and linger so long is that they're working so hard. I mean, Exorcist was not fleet by any means. I mean, that is a movie with a very slow boil and a slow build. And I think that they are trying to do something similar. I don't have a problem with the build. I will agree, I find the characters to be rather bland. Mary Ellen's problem is that she likes a, a boy and she has asthma. So every time she thinks about asking him or talking to him about the homecoming dance, she has to hit the aspirator. 
And of course, that's a setup. Daniela's the interesting one. Daniela is the one that has some grief and some guilt. And that's always what you want to see in a horror movie. You don't like to see bland people. I mean, bland people survive horror movies. Guilty people get tortured. I thought Daniela was going to die in this film because she is the one who causes the problems. In most horror films, we do see the evil invoked. I mean, that's something we've talked about with some of these earlier films is that nobody did anything to bring this upon themselves. They didn't play with a Ouija board. They didn't challenge a spirit. But here, Daniela crashes the babysitting party because we're going to find out she blames herself for her father's death and she wants to see her father. So she's really there. And I think Mary Ellen knows this all too well to get in and see the spooky stuff. But what works for me, even though I think they could have done it faster, is Daniela isn't single-minded. She did bring Judy a pair of roller skates. She is there, and she is bonding with Judy. And Judy needs friends right now, and she and Daniela become friends. I like that. I thought she brought the roller skates to get Judy out of the house. Oh, she totally did. Yeah, Daniela did not bring the birthday present because she wanted to bond with the child. Yeah. She did it so that... We're told two things. We're told, one, she's a gossip. It's in the page of the headlines that the Warrens do this. She wants to know all the details. The cashier that Mary Ellen is crushing on lives across the street, so she's also wanting to get him involved in all of this. What has he seen living across the street? But yeah, she wants to know. I mean, gossip. And that could be enough as a character motivation. That they add later that she needs to believe in the paranormal because she wants reassurance about the event that killed her father just feels like a way of writing it so that she doesn't have to die. She doesn't have to be punished for all of the manipulation that she does to break into this artifacts room. But it also gives it a more human motivation. I wouldn't enjoy the character as well if she were just mischievous. This makes her sympathetic. Strategically, it should. The conflict is resolved so easily. Oh, she was driving the car, but it wasn't her fault. I mean, this is what we're going to be told. We never see the car accident. Like, how easy is that to absolve guilt then? Okay. And she doesn't seem super tortured about Mm -mm. it, like, in general. It's just like, oh, your parents have scary stuff. I need to get them out of the house so I can look. You know, I mean, it's not... Right. Yeah, I think I would have preferred... We're hinted at this... Because when Daniela is off pretending to go home, but realizing she still stole the Warren's keys, because, you know, you keep the keys to the danger room on your desk. Yeah, they're the worst parents, possibly. (laughs) I would at least keep them in a gun safe. Even if you don't have a gun, get a gun safe and then keep the key to the gun safe in your pocket. But she's gone And we're going to have Mary Ellen and Judy talk. And Mary Ellen says, well, her father died in the car wreck and Daniela was driving. And Judy says, was it her fault? And Mary Ellen says, only one person thinks it was her fault. And I'm like, okay, so she blames herself. But wouldn't it be better if we got to see something like the one person who thought it was her fault was her mother? And the mother was being mean to her and she was going out trying to put on a happy face, but every time she went home, the mother was accusing her of killing her father. Yeah, it's very facile the way they introduce this guilt and absolve it. And that's the way that this series has always worked. Horror movies are more interesting if the characters are lustful, if they are guilty, if they are drawn to things that they shouldn't. The fact that she just needs to understand she did nothing wrong is less interesting than she did something wrong and she needs to atone. But my biggest problem is, as Marjorie mentioned, 
pacing. We spend a lot of time before Daniela even gets in the room. She finally gets in the room. She goes around. She plays some piano keys, a few notes of Twinkle Twinkle. And finally, Annabelle is going to thud forward. She's going to release these spirits but it's then still going to take a long time before more than just we're knocking at the door and the little girl from Annabelle Creation, the one that died in the beginning, is going to appear at the front door and scream at Mary Ellen and then never come back. Yeah, this is more like Annabelle was a prankster and kept hiding the remote and turning off and on lights. This wasn't really scary. It was just, oh, Annabelle, you're so silly. Well, here's the problem. They've introduced that the doll, I mean, from the very first scene, the doll is not possessed. It is a conduit for a demon. But it is possessed too. Mm, That's not what they literally say. It is not possessed in the very first scene. But in previous movies, they've said there is a spirit in the doll. The nurses allowed the spirit in the doll, and then the spirit wanted to take over a person. I think when we see the hoarding gray thing later, that's the spirit in Annabelle. That's the demon that has been in Annabelle the whole time. It holds Annabelle. It's never in Annabelle, technically speaking. Okay, but it's linked to Annabelle. Because she's the conduit, yes. Right, yes. And again, are these details even that interesting? Does it matter if it's in the doll, outside the doll, down the hall from the doll? I don't care either. (laughs) What does it want? A soul. What does a demon want? What we're told is that it wants souls. So why isn't Daniela possessed in this moment? This should be the moment where Daniela is possessed. She broke into this room trying to do something that she shouldn't have, and now it's got her. That's how the exorcist worked. You know, she played with the Ouija board, and then she was possessed, and it became more and more manifest. We spend an hour before she's actually going to be possessed, and this movie should not take its time in such a way. We needed action to happen at this point. I did not mind the lingering buildup because I know that that's what they do to create legitimacy and believability. But now that we're here, Annabelle is out of the case. She should be evil or starting to manifest that evil. And that should be part of the fun for the next hour. Instead, we just do, yeah, pranks, phone calls, doorbell rings, and cakes burning. That may be the worst thing (laughs) that they do is like, she had one job. Her job was to watch the cakes and now they're burnt and she's like, just put the pink icing on it and we'll serve the child burnt cake. (laughs) They do serve the cake and it doesn't look black in the middle. (laughs) I agree with you, but yet in the Annabelle movies, possession has always been semi-secondary. I mean, in Annabelle creation, yes, the little girl does become possessed, but... In the first one, they just want to throw somebody out a window. So that's when she says she wants a soul. I thought she was looking for a human sacrifice here. I didn't think she was looking for possession. And what we're going to see is it's the evil wedding dress that's going to possess someone, vomit into Daniela's mouth later. It's not going to be the Annabelle spirit. So I think Annabelle wants to kill someone, but all the other spirits conjured want their own thing. Yeah, this is all just too much. And Stuart is right. It took way too long to get to all of this. And then it's like the greatest hits of what's in that room are possessing Daniela. I think that hour, if you cut it out and just got right to the, or like even a faster buildup, you didn't even have to do the whole hour, but it was a whole hour of nothing. And where I really noticed it was from 
about the 45 minute mark to the one hour mark. And I know 15 minutes is not very long. If I have like 15 minutes to wait for a movie to start, that time passes pretty quickly. But in a 100 minute film, 15 minutes is 15% of that film. And I was checking my watch constantly, like, when is the act going to change and something going to happen? I enjoyed the buildup because I was liking the characters on screen, but they really tried my patience. Well, again, what does anything want? If Annabelle is wanting to get a soul by manipulating the other objects in this room, which is what we're more or less told many times, sometimes overtly, let's break down each thing that attacks and see if it has a satisfying story. One of the first things we see is, as you mentioned, Arnie, B. Mullen comes back, the very girl that inspired the Annabelle doll, the doll maker's child that was run over in Annabelle creation, is banging on the door asking to play with Annabelle. Is she also the kid underneath the blanket later? When Judy goes to bed later and there's something in there with the doll in her, in bed. I couldn't get a good look at who was under the blanket. It was a very quick cut. I don't know. I think so, because in that same scene, Judy has a very creepy four-color film light that is going to change colors, and we're going to see the doll change into what I think is B, change into what I think is the murderous girl. The cultist, yeah. Yeah, the cultist, and then change into the horny demon. Horny right. demon. <laughs> yeah, I call him Ramhead, but we still have no name for what this thing represents. He's satanic. He's got like a goat or Ramhead, and like Valak, if we knew his name, he'd just go away. Yeah, that is the demon that has a connection to Annabelle, and that is going to manifest itself in whatever way. All right. Meanwhile, there is in that room a white dress. We can tell it's not La Llorona because there's a picture, a framed picture next to it of a white woman. So this is a different veiled creature. But how many times have we seen this one? I did wonder if it was La Llorona briefly, but hey, that wasn't really supposed to be part of this universe. I stand by it. Yeah. There's a moment where Judy is upstairs and the bride walks by all the windows causing an earthquake. And then it just kind of bum rushes her. Here's another disappointment. No creature can ever hurt you in this universe. There is no reason for you to ever die if you grab a crucifix and can recite some verse. That's all that you need to protect yourself. Well, I'd be screwed. I don't exactly have a crucifix at arm's reach. And I probably cannot recite a damn prayer. Mm-hmm. So I think, again, as I mentioned with La Llorona, it's reinforcing the faithful. It is saying all these Hail Marys and things that the priest makes you do after confession is going to save your life someday. Yeah, which is boring. That's really, really <laughs> boring. Yeah, that's like preaching to the choir, quite literally, whereas it's more interesting to watch sinners battle than it is saints, I guess is what I would say. Of course, this child, if it knows, it has a crucifix and brings it to school and all of that, has, there's nothing that's going to happen to it. The only one that you feel like could suffer is Daniela because she did commit that car crash and she could potentially, she eventually will be a vessel for this bride, but it's going to take forever in a day. The bride is my favorite of the demons, though, because first of all, she's going to stab you. Now, it does suck that she stabs Daniela and Daniela is fine. If a knife plunges into a victim and that person is not bleeding, that is a cheat in a horror film, period. You gotta dodge the knife to not be cut. But I was shocked when the bride gets the blade in, and a couple of times I like the aesthetic of the bride. It changes, but 
at some points it looks like her entire midriff is missing like she got shot with a shotgun and half her stomach went away i liked the bride best because i at least understood what it was and what it wanted if you did congratulations i understand it's a leftover from veilhead and la llorona and every other specter that they've ever thrown at us from this the valak it's practically a nun i mean there's just completely unoriginal compare it to every other demon we have here bride is best i mean i don't get that i mean let's go through the others the hellhound this foggy werewolf type thing that can't even possibly kill a chicken well we don't know that we're going to probably see this in the next conjuring movie conjuring 3 is being shot right now and they have teased that lycanthropy will be a part of it and the warrens did apparently go to essex and battle a werewolf so this is all, quote-unquote, part of their true story that we'll see more of. It's in a case file that kids are digging through the files, and what they couldn't be determined was, is it a werewolf or is it evil fog? And I think that becomes part of the question when we bring Bob with balls back into the film. And this is kind of fun. He's set up because he's the clerk at the grocery store who checks them out. With the cake mix, Daniela spills the beans that Mary Ellen has a crush on him. And he just happens to live across the street from the Warrens. He's going to come by and his whole goal is to ask Mary Ellen to homecoming. And he gets trapped outside. He's the main guy fighting this werewolf and I had to laugh I wrote that Bob was the biggest chicken in the coop because it's set up that for some reason the Warrens in Connecticut have a chicken coop that's common and <laughs> it is I mean no I, and I think their scene is unusual for having it I mean I think Daniela kind of rolls her eyes about it as well but it doesn't feel like they live on a farm it feels like they live in a city they do but okay so here's the thing they had a really big backyard but in a lot of places still to this day, you can have X amount of chickens in your backyard. Yeah, I know people in urban areas that raise chickens. Urban farming is huge, Arnie. I guess it was in the 70s too, but Bob has to hide in the chicken coop with his guitar because he came to serenade Mary Ellen because of the pizza dude. The pizza dude is the funniest in this movie. I love the pizza dude who ate a slice of the pizza on the way and is like, there's only one way to woo a woman like that. Rock and roll. He actually says a guy like that. I don't even understand that moment. Like, where they were, they were going for comedy, right? I didn't know if he was going to turn into a demon or not. He was so weird. I wasn't sure either. And yeah, he does call Mary Ellen a guy. You're right. <laughs> it is strange. A whole thing about Bob feels weirdly integrated. I think they feel like they needed for a young audience to give some sex appeal here, but it's really chaste. And yeah, the fact that he ends up in a chicken coop, and I, I, you know, it's a joke on the idea that, you know, these women need to be rescued, but he should have had something to do. Well, he's going to save Judy later, but... It really, really bothered me that this was supposed to be 1972. His haircut is so Bieber. No, that's a 70s haircut for guys. It really felt like Bieber with the bangs and some of the looks and the singing. I thought they were given a Justin Bieber thing here. Well, you know what they do is they try to find the elements of the period that look cool now. Or that could potentially be a new trend that they could bring back. So it is the 70s. It's everything that we saw in the 70s, but framed in a way that could be appealing to the youth of today. We don't want to see bell bottoms. We don't want to see things that are way uncool. I do want to see Bell Bottoms if it's a 70s film. But what Bob does that proves he's a hero and wins Mary Ellen's heart, Mary Ellen 
has an asthma attack. We knew she would. And it was said earlier, she left her inhaler in the car. Hold up. You're asthmatic? We've got inhalers everywhere. And yet, I will often say it's in the car, it's upstairs, I didn't bring one. Wait a second, I almost always have one in my purse. I could usually am no more than a room away from an inhaler, and you don't even have bad asthma attacks. No, but if I didn't have you, I'd be screwed. Okay. Yeah, and to be fair, this is not her house. She is babysitting at the Warrens. That's true. So, Judy has to run out to the car to get the inhaler, and this... Hellhound is going to attack her. Bob is going to get in the way and smash the Hellhound with his guitar and turn the Hellhound into fog. And that allows Judy to get to the door and not be clawed by this ghostly hound. So Bob does have his heroic moment. He's a minor character. He gets a minor moment. Right. Okay. And so maybe my favorite, certainly the most underdeveloped, and I don't understand it, But physically, the most interesting of the bunch is the ferryman, another case file that they were digging around in. They link it to Mary Ellen, that actually one of his victims is a lookalike. And so does that mean they're making a ferryman movie in which this actress will appear and be killed? That's how I took it. Yeah, I don't know, but we will see throughout this movie that she is drawn to the closet in Ed's study, and that seems to be a doorway into the ferryman's, you know, he's kind of, in a drawing, he's depicted as the boatman on uh, the river Styx. You know, he is death. I know the Greek myth about having to have the coin to pay death for passage across the river Styx. What I don't get is exactly what he wants in haunting this house and having all the victims with coins on their eyes. It's a good visual where in the dark you just see it's like glowing eyes, but I don't understand what they're wanting right here and what the danger is. Daniela fondled the coins. Those are all the coins from the people's eyes. Yeah, so we're supposed to think, I think, at some point in the middle of this movie that Mary Ellen could be dragged away because she has a moment where she's put the kid to bed and she thought Daniela had left and then she hears coins drop and she's kind of following the coins and they end up doing the paranormal activity dragging around the house thing dragging her into the closet which ends with the simplicity of this movie she simply grabs a flashlight and shines it at the ferryman and he stops so is that where that is from because I've noticed the trend in movies now is all the ghosts goblins and bad people grab you by the feet and just pull super fast is that from Paranormal Activity. I've never seen the movies. Yeah, I associate that specifically with them getting a big jump scare out of that. Okay. It's for a scare, but it just always seems that's like the go-to now is like you're dragged like by your feet and ha- trying to grab onto the door jam and keep yourself from being pulled in. Mm-hmm. Didn't they do that in Poltergeist? Well, that was a big like vacuum. Yeah, yeah, but still it was being pulled by the feet and clawing to not be sucked down. Yeah, it's a trope you can do in a PG horror movie because it's not bloody. And I'm swearing that this is a PG horror movie. There's just well, nothing it is. that scary in this movie. They constantly are playing games. I mean, they literally are playing games. Another thing that they do, and this was a real board game put out by Milton Bradley in the 60s, Feely Mealy. 
I wondered about that. I'd never heard of it, but it looks super fun. And I noticed it when she was in the artifact room. I'm like, wow, a Milton Bradley product. What, would Hasbro not allow a Ouija board so they put a Milton Bradley game in? But I'd never heard of Feely Mealy. Mm-mm. It didn't get much play beyond the 60s, but it is as presented here. You draw a card and then you reach into the box and do your best to find in a time limit that object using only the power of touch and you pull it out. I thought they would do something more out of it. I thought so too. I thought they would pull something horrifying or they would get pulled in, uh, you know, or, or hand bitten or something like that. But it seems like an idea that they had for a creepy moment that gets basically turned into a hand that comes out and trips Judy at one point. Yeah, I was really expecting more out of that because we saw the game in the artifact room and then all of a sudden it's in Judy's closet. She's like, oh, I don't remember that game. And then they play it. I was really hoping like they'd pull out things that were like in the room, like pull out some of those coins or something like that. Or But it was so wasted. And then it was the key and they made this big deal about Mary Ellen sticking her hand in there trying to get the key. And then Judy goes, oh, I'll get it. Boop, there it is. It's like, wait, what? Yeah. Okay, but I'll give this film this. It's good-ish with suspense. A lot of times, like that hand goes in that box. I'm in suspense of... What's going to happen? I'm expecting something to bite the hand. She'll pull back. All right, not in this movie, but if I were making this movie, she'd pull back a bloody stump of a wrist. The problem with the movie is it never pays off the suspense, but I feel like it's good at drawing you in. I felt like the audience was drawn in in these moments. Again, I noticed everybody was silent. Everybody was looking at the screen, including me. Then it just, yeah, it doesn't pay off, but it's good to have some false suspense because then you never know if the real suspense is coming. One thing this movie did do, as Marjorie said earlier, it broke my rule of one, two, three, big noise! It would sometimes be a count of 12 before big noise, or sometimes there was no big noise. But I have a question. So up to that point, we'd been in the movie a good portion of time where not a damn thing has happened, and you were still on the edge of your seat with the suspense? I was curious what was going to happen to her hand, yeah. I knew nothing was going to happen because nothing had happened up at that point. Right. It was a grift. It was a con. The whole movie was a grift. Yes. Nothing has happened. And so I'm constantly in suspense that something's going to. That's the definition of insanity, you know. Finally, it does because Daniela gets captured by the bride and the bride vomits in her mouth. And I've seen enough Conjuring movies to know what that means. She's going to be possessed. We're going to have to have the Warrens come save them. We need to have an exorcism now. Okay, I have a question though, because again, I don't know a lot about religion. Is it common for demons to possess you by vomiting in your mouth? In Conjuring movies, 100%. Okay, so it's just in Conjuring movies. It's not like Beelzebub is going to possess you by vomiting in your mouth. Maybe. I don't know if the Conjuring movies are right. I've never heard it being referenced in anyone. I, I knew someone that supposedly conducted an exorcism. Did they do that by videotape? Because apparently <laughs> you don't have to be there for an exorcism. Wow. You can just play a tape of it. Yeah, that is... That was like the biggest foreshadowing ever. Like, oh, that's coming back. Yeah, they have a Super 8 projector that they just happened to turn on that has that footage of the exorcism the Warrens have conducted before. We saw this same footage in the first Conjuring movie. And you're right. They don't need to be there to help out poor Daniela. She can just stand in front of the screen and get it shown on her. And that's enough to burn the 
bride out. That is so awful. That is so awful. The Warrens don't need to give tours. Do an infomercial. Mm -hmm. Do you think you're possessed? Buy our tape. Just watching it will (laughs) remove any demons. You know what? I wouldn't put it past them to have done that. I just think that they could never get it to work is really the problem there. I thought for sure Daniela was gone. I thought she was dead when she was stabbed. I thought she was going to die when the phone rang because we saw the television that's a few seconds in the future and we saw her all bloody. I thought she was going to die. She gets possessed. Usually the possessed person needs the warrants. That they turn on a projector is when my arrow suddenly went Chernobyl red. It was like, eh, 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 this movie sucks. Eh, eh. Wow, I'm married to you and it took that long? It took a while. How did you think that very clearly underage children were going to die? I mean, it was a shoe when the Judy was never going to die. Of course, she's still alive today. Does that even matter? Like, the fact that nothing has happened is more frustrating. I don't, yes, I knew the second that the chicken went out of the coop and the guy closed the door and we heard a sound effect, I'm like, that will be the only thing that dies in this movie. That chicken is the only thing that's going to die. But does it have to be, I mean, Poltergeist is a movie where nobody dies and I think it's very scary. It could be still impactful if I felt like the ghosts were preying on the relationships. The relationship that we've seen, the only one that matters, is Daniela, before she was possessed, was at the piano playing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Her zombie dad joined her and then screamed at her that it was all her fault that he died in the car crash. Is that all that they got? I mean, is that all that it wanted to do was just to make her feel guilty? They prey on your weakness, and that was her weakness, is what I've got. You know, demons are tricksters. They always try to fool you and weaken you. I mean, that goes back to the very first Conjuring movie. They're going to say whatever they can. They're going to pick at your weaknesses because they need to do that before they possess you. Okay, so she needed to have gone through that in order for the bride to vomit in her mouth. She has a whole lot of in this room. Like at one point, she's watching the TV and it tells you your future, but I don't know if it really happened or not. She saw a vision of herself covered in blood and later she gets stabbed, so maybe. Yeah, but I think what happened was she was going to be killed by a telephone somehow. That's the most dangerous game of telephone ever. And Judy ran into the room and was like, no, don't answer the phone. But in the TV, Judy hadn't run in. So I don't know. This is, she spends way too long in that room, just doing nothing, locked in that room, huddling in front of the TV. We keep cutting back to her. I agree. I think I'm saying nobody dies as a way of saying nothing happens. If somebody died, it would up the stakes. Something needs to happen more. There's so many false demons in here. What about the samurai suit of armor that can turn its head a little bit? Mm. I, I mean, that's all it ever does. And Mary Ellen gets close to it one time and starts hearing, what, Mongolians yelling at her? Yeah, I don't get that. I understood it was supposed to be some sort of, like, maybe samurai warrior. But he was a good demon is the way I took it, too, though. I didn't take it that way because he kept showing up to block their way. There's only one good ghost, and that is the priest that has been following Judy all this time. That's her whole arc in this movie, is that Father Michael Morrissey has been hanging out on the playground. This guy's name, if I can stop ripping on the movie and turn to ripping on the actor, Gary Seven? Yeah. Does he really like the failed Star Trek spinoff? I don't know if you guys remember, but I instantly knew Gary Seven had an episode of Star Trek where they were setting up a spinoff 
of a time traveler in the 60s. Don't know anything that you just said, but I did love his stage name. If your name's like Gary Smith, then go by Gary Seven. Yeah, that's more fun. I don't think he warrants a stage name. He hasn't worked enough. It's not like he's a DJ. Yeah, you gotta work it somehow. You know what I mean? Like, that's exactly why you come up with a fake name. You think, you know, Dwayne Johnson's named The Rock? I mean, you know, you gotta come up with something in order to be cool. (laughs) Touché. So, anyway, Gary Seven, Father Morrissey, is basically the guy that puts in their head that they need to get Annabelle back in the case. Like, ultimately, they need to find this doll, throw it in the case, and all of this stuff will stop. And literally, this priest, he was at the school haunting Judy, and he shows up here literally to walk down a hall and never do anything again. I think that happened in The Nun, too, written by the same guy. I think that there was another, like, nun character that kind of led somebody down a hall and they got some device and that was it. Yeah, you know, I'd like to see something, I don't know, like The Frighteners, where Father Morrissey has to sacrifice his immortal soul in exchange for Judy's life or something. He has to jump in front of the samurai warrior and his ghostly form dissipates and Judy's able to escape something. Use him for something more than, hey, walk this way. These aren't these kind of movies, Arnie. I wish it was. Yeah. Don't wish it was. Just see better horror movies. And we get a little bit more of the fairy man here because Mary Ellen does go in the closet to get the doll and she sees herself with coins in her eyes. So again, is this a tease for some movie I don't want? Probably. Depends on how well this does. But finally, I mean, the goal is to get Annabelle back in the case. And man, we go cat's eye of the Stephen King movie because the horned ramhead demon shows up, picks up Judy and starts to, I'm assuming, suck her soul through her mouth. Yeah, they got to give some kind of drama here because they haven't established what happens. But girl power, all three of them basically come together to close the case. Daniela picks herself up after. Yeah, who we last saw possessed in front of a projector. Well, she got exercised, Arnie. I mean, come on. She's fine. Changed her clothes, put her other clothes back on, arrived just right at the right time to help close that case. Yeah. It's pretty easy to do. You didn't even need the priest to bless it again. No. And then it's over. Doofus boy comes running in too late, but just in time to have some flirtatious smiles. They all fall asleep. And then we have a coda in which Judy finally has her birthday party. And for some reason, everyone decides to come. They want to see a haunted house. I thought what was happening was it starts off, it's her birthday, and it's just her parents, and Judy seems depressed. I thought that the parents had forbid Daniela and Mary Ellen from coming, because the scene before that, they said, let's tell the Warrens everything, which is the smart thing to do. Yeah, I mean, you let demons out of the house, so yeah, I think that's the way to go. It's not like the time I almost set my mom's bathroom on fire and just decided not to tell her, and she never knew where the big singe mark came from. (laughs) I do love that, like, Lorraine's line about all that is, oh, you're young. That, that was her whole thing about- Oh, you let some demons out. Girls will be girls. Mm-hmm. I took it as, since they told the truth, they were banned from the house. Judy has to have this sad birthday without her friends. But no, it's just a tease. Again, more suspense. The doorbell rings. There's Judy and Daniela. And everyone else, including Daniela's brother, Anthony. The bedwetter. Yeah, he's pick on her and call her names. And Daniela is going to reveal he wets the bed and is all upset because of their dead dad. 
And this is not how Judy, the real Judy Warren, met her husband, Tony. They met much later in life. He's a police officer, but he helps run the museum now. But they named the character Tony in his honor. And who knows? They may be, in the story, keep this character around as a love interest if they decide to pursue the Judy as the lead character. If Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga get too big for this series and want to pass the torch, uh, you could see these two grow into the roles of the new caretakers. Arnie, I'm very worried that things like this are keeping you in suspense. And now I plan to like keep you in suspense a lot more at home because apparently you're a suspense whore and little things keep you in suspense over and over, even though nothing happens. Yeah, I'm not in suspense when I ask. Marjorie Stewart, <laughs> do you recommend bringing Annabelle home? Marjorie. Well, if I hadn't made it clear at this point, <laughs> like I said at the beginning... I wish I had some coins on my eyes and maybe some Bose headphones so that I didn't have to see or hear this movie. It was bland, lazy. I mean, there are some missed opportunities there, but I think by the time you're like 30 minutes in, you can just give up. God, I feel so bad we've done this entire series. This is by far the worst of the series. Oh, no. There was no payoff. Absolutely none. They had some chickens in the movie. That was kind of cool. I like chickens. They're fun. But it was just so bland. The 70s decor in the house. Seriously on point. They had like a stellar decorator who would get every 70s trope in that house. But the rest of the movie... Pretty dull and bland, and um, I don't think it was scary at all. I was not in suspense. I was left hoping for a lot more after Annabelle creation, because that was decent, but it was decently acted. Nothing against anybody in this movie. The little girl Judy stood out. She was pretty good, and she'll probably go on to do some other stuff. You know, I- I'm not going to recommend this if I wasn't clear before, and if someone else is paying for it, you're still paying for it with two hours of your time. Stuart. Yeah, it's a sham. It's another conjuring sham that it pretends that this is all based on some kind of truth. It's a sham because they say R-rated horror and then you get this bloodless bumbling around in the dark. It's a sham because they have Ed and Lorraine at the beginning and then they disappear because it's not really their movie. I have to believe that all the goodwill that that first conjuring movie created for that Victorian doll and how creepy it was in its 15 minutes of that film has been exercised. No one is scared of that doll anymore, which is why we got the movie we did. Annabelle came home, and you barely paid attention to Annabelle because they had to throw half a dozen other characters, monsters, werewolves, ferrymen, what have you, to try and keep your interest. It reminded me of how I threw together meals in college sometimes. You know, you open up a can of SpaghettiOs, some, pour some breakfast cereal, have a bag of Doritos, take a few bites of each, and then throw it all away and order a pizza because it's an unappetizing combo. It's a lazy combo combo that you just threw together hoping that it would tantalize a few. I realized that the biggest problem really with the Conjuring universe now this one made this apparent was that you got to have characters at the center. If they are all piety, if they're all innocence, if they're all these bland chicks that haven't done anything wrong, then there's nothing of interest. The point of a horror movie is that you have to be tempted by evil. You have to be weak. You have to be lustful. You have to have impure thoughts that lead you into a predicament that you must pull yourself out of. Here, it's just so easy for the characters to hold up a crucifix or a guitar and just play their way out of evil. Who wants evil to be exercised by boredom? That's what they're doing. That's what the Warrens try to do, is they take the world of the supernatural and they turn it into a boring tourist trap gift shop, and one that I do not recommend you buy anything from. 
not recommend. I wanted to recommend this movie so long. I'm tired of the streak of not recommends. I'm tired of having to return to a series that I have yet to get real enjoyment out of. I went in thinking this could be the one. I thought this one could just be a crazy monster mash of all these different demons and ghosts, and I could have some real fun and some real jumps and... You know, I did like the characters in there, but you're right. They're all good people. There's nobody who's really conflicted. They're charismatic in a sitcom way. You know, they're bland enough that you could watch them week after week as they forget to turn in their homework or miss a curfew, but there's not enough here for horror, and they just rely on the same tropes too often. There's only so many times that I'm going to giggle after a loud noise startles me. A loud noise is not an earned scare. It is a cheap scare. It is the cat jumping out at you when you think it's the killer. I know a lot of horror makers who have said in interviews they don't want to do that type of scare because it's hoary. And that's what the Conjuring series relies on. My only hope is that the coins are off people's eyes for this one. This looks to be opening at the lowest for a Conjuring film, $30 million. I mean, its budget was 27 but I'm sure it had a hefty advertising budget. And you know those cinema scores where people rank movies on the way out and they see this utter turd and the way you know it's an utter turd is it got an A-. minus. Mm-hmm. The audiences are really, really forgiving. This one got a B-. minus. Oh. Yeah, that is, that's a very low score. That's closer to like a D plus uh-huh. in actual grading. Because, yes, you get a free movie and, and it's a movie you wanted to see. And so you're prone to want to be positive. And so a B minus is pretty damning. Yeah, I am curious to see how much this falls off in its second week. Obviously, Spider-Man is not going to be a direct competitor for it. Very few are going to be in that Venn diagram. Uh, no, all the girls are going to go see Tom Holland. That's true. The teen girls love Tom Holland. That's true. I imagine all the stars of Annabelle are going to go see Tom Holland next week. But yeah, for me, it's not recommend. Just another one in a series of not recommends in a series that I wish could earn a green arrow from me and earn its reputation and its box office. I still can't conjure up a reason why this series is successful. Yeah, they were, it seems like they're running out of things in the cabinet, right? I mean, they keep producing new monsters because they don't have any faith in telling the story anymore. Again, where was Annabelle in this movie? We never even learned the demon's name. We never learned any more dimension about it. You'd basically just shut some glass on the doll and that stops it. Hold up a crucifix, you know, say a psalm or two. Yawn. That is not a foe. That is not a monster worth worthy of a movie and the fact that they threw in so many other monsters just meant that they didn't know how to dramatize the story any further or they were just throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks for a spin-off because next they are making the conjuring three we're going to get ed and lorraine back i'm happy for their presence their scenes in this movie were the best scenes in this movie so in that film, they say it could be an 80s period piece now, which would be fun to get us into a more recent time. And yes, it will have a story involving werewolves, potentially setting up even more spinoffs. Yeah, they've said that they are not going to do demons and spirits. So that's good to know. Although I guess it involves a character that takes the stand on trial for murder because they were possessed. So I don't know how that isn't a demon, but maybe he's a werewolf. And... 
a sequel to The Nun is coming, and they're still working on that Crooked Man spinoff. Do people really want this? The box office will tell. I, I cannot imagine that after seven films, this isn't starting to feel a little tired. <laughs> Start. <laughs> I'm just thinking the seventh Marvel movie was Iron Man 3, and we had how many more to go? Yeah, this ain't Marvel. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not even close to being Marvel, and it never has been. But it has solidly produced $100 million grocers. I have to believe that this movie won't come near that. I think as long as they're making money on these, they're going to keep churning them out. They obviously don't care about any kind of putting out good product or artistic integrity or continuity or anything like that. I mean, just understand, this movie series has made over half a billion dollars. Oh, I understand it. I understand money talks, and I understand why would they change a formula as long as it's working. What I ask of the audience is, have you been served? Have you really been served by watching? It's like a pitch meeting. Here's all the things you could be watching. You want to see any of them, but we're not actually going to present any of those things in this film. But I think what it is, is it's a very pedestrian and safe horror movie for the people who don't see things like a Rob Zombie movie or maybe even like the Friday the 13th movies or something like that. This is a nice safe horror movie. It's not gory. It's got jump scares for some people, not for me. I mean... We may demand more because we see more, and we're also horror fans. There's different types of horror, but even with jump scares, you expect jump scares. If a movie makes me jump, I know it's good because you kind of see the different tropes of it in the common setup. So if they can pull something out and make me jump, that's great. But for people who don't see a lot of movies, this is a nice, safe pedestrian thing. There were some kids in the theater with us, if you recall, Arnie. Some younger kids. And you know what? It's probably a perfectly safe movie for little kids, even though it is rated R, because you're preying on silly jump scares, a doll laying in the bed. Sometimes quite literally board games. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that like when you're having a slumber party, when you're a tween, this is the kind of scary stuff you come up with. Yep. I don't think it should have been rated R. I really think that they wanted it to be because I will be hard pressed to see a horror movie that's PG-13 because I feel it's made for kids. They needed that R rating, but I think it's perfectly safe for tweens. Well, we will be returning to this universe next September, but hey, that's over a year away and it will be the Warrens back again. Probably for a final time. I have Mm -hmm. to believe that Vera and Patrick are wanting to be done with this. It's embarrassment on their resume. I mean, I know it pays the bills, but they're dramatic actors that have done good work in other things. They don't need to be doing this kind of schlock. She wasn't very good in Godzilla, but nobody was, but that's a whole different story. But I kind of like them, and I kind of like the sprinkling of them throughout instead of being focused on them. Well, if you're looking for good horror, maybe we'll have some this Friday. Our Peg Frost series returns with Slaughterhouse Rules, a British horror comedy with Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. Yeah, it looks a lot like Attack the Block, that one that Frost made with the kids running around the apartment complex. This one is a boarding school with monsters from below. And then in just a couple weeks on the main feed, we're getting back to Stephen King as we slowly build up to It Chapter 2. We'll have The Mist, and then after that, Mercy. And no, I'm not mispronouncing Misery, as some people have thought. There's actually a Stephen King film called Mercy, based on the short story Grandma. Meanwhile, next week, a movie that I don't think will be a disappointment at cinema scores or the box office, the last Marvel movie of the year, 
Spider-Man Far From Home. You know, I was kind of mixed on Homecoming. I thought it was a garbled story in terms of Spider-Man fighting a villain. But I really did like Tom Holland. I really have liked the trailers that I've seen. And yeah, let's hope that they can build off of Endgame and tell us where they're going with that whole franchise. Because it's a big mystery. I think Tom Holland is really great. And I think if he sticks around and picks the right properties, we may see him well into his older age. He's pretty charming when you see him talk, too. And again, still for horror, don't forget, just a few days ago came our review of the new Child's Play. Did we enjoy that more than this? Stuart, did you enjoy that more than this? Um, no. (laughs) I enjoyed the song. I got to hear the song numerous times. I enjoyed the song that Arnie made. (laughs) Yeah, the show's enjoyable. (laughs) So Marjorie, Stuart, thank you for conjuring up another podcast with me. And until next time, it's over. You survived. You don't come out the other side of something like this weaker. What is there left to be scared of? Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Pretty far out, isn't it? Yeah, it's groovy. You can hear more movie reviews at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. In our archive section, you can find reviews of the Insidious films, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, Saw, and hundreds more. Look what she made me do. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. The links to our social media pages can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Sometimes when you get haunted, it's like stepping on gum. You take it with you. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating you can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. We got all the money tied up in this place and had a lot of repairs on top of that. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. I like your dog. Now Playing's The Conjuring Retrospective Series is edited by Arnie. But he's always sad. I think something bad happened to him. Now playing credit narration by Brock. It talked to me. It said that it wants my family dead. Now playing is not affiliated with New Line Cinema, The Saffron Company, Evergreen Media Group, or Warner Brothers Pictures. The Conjuring films are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. We should talk to someone. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts, and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. The devil is the father of lies. Demons are his manipulators. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2019. All rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. We have to get out of here. You did good. No, you did. And it sounds good.
do not disturb on phone because my phone decided to blow up at the second. I heard it. It's the spirits. <laughs> they don't want us to rip this movie apart. <laughs> Too bad. <laughs> All right. Today we're discussing... Starring McKenna Grace, Madison Eisman, Katie Sirif, Vera Farmiga. See? <laughs> <laughs> Katie Sirif, not Katie Siri. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the spirits are everywhere. Siri, why is this movie so bad? <laughs> My problem was the older kids all felt like they just stepped off of a freaking uh, popsicle ad. Popsicle ad. Specifically a popsicle. That That's a really weird <laughs> okay, analogy, me, Arnie. Let me say that again. The older girls felt like they just stepped out of a Geico commercial. Nope. Nope. Try again. We'll see if you can get it a third time. The older girls just felt like they stepped out of a... Noxima ad? Noxima ad. That's better. <laughs> Marjorie will write all of your lines, Arnie. Could you actually get pizza delivery in the 70s? Did that exist? I don't remember. I was I was very small. I'm sure. I don't know. I mean, we didn't get HBO until like the early 80s. According to HungryHowies.com, the first pizza delivery was in 1889. Okay. So what I would that have looked like? <laughs> so I A carriage? <laughs> it was in Naples. Cold and greasy. Mm. Legend has it King Umberto of Italy and Queen Margarita of Savoy were visiting Naples, and lucky for pizza history, the queen became sick after eating rotten food, which is when she requested to dine on traditional Italian food, and Chef Raphael Esposito had the glory of serving his pizza to the royals. Okay. Thank <laughs> you. The more you know now playing moment. <laughs> uh, modern pizza delivery started in the 60s, according to this okay. pizza site. Someday we'll win a trivia contest with this question, guys. Mm-hmm. 